Sisters and brothers, ladies and gentlemen, friends, neighbors, comrades, all citizens of the world, wherever you're going, wherever you've been, and wherever you're at, we welcome you to the Live from the Heartland show on Spotify Podcasts. New episodes air Saturday at 9 a.m. Central Time. I'm your host, Michael James, encouraging you to take the chain from the brain to get back in the people's game, because it's time to move from the lower level to the higher, from the shallower to the deeper, from the one-sided to the many, and from the abstract to the concrete. So without further ado, let's get it on. Hello, everybody out there, and welcome to another edition of the Live from the Heartland show. This one is for the week of January 27th, and we are recording it on a very gray Monday, the 22nd, here in Chicago, up in the 49th Ward. Today, we're going to have three guests. We're going to bring on our sometimes co-host and our sometimes producer, Katie Hogan, to talk about the work of Network 49 and the uh, Bring Chicago Home Initiative to get rid of homelessness in Chicago. We're going to have Amy Nelson Christensen from Loyola School of Education talking about a project to help migrant kids going to school in Chicago. And uh, we're going to bring on a friend from way out in Oregon, James W. Russell, who's been a guest on the show several times. And this time he's going to talk about retirement. He has a new book out. So with all that said, let's get going. I want to just talk a little bit about politics. I get kind of optimistic that uh, we can uh, not have the orange-haired guy ascend to the presidency again. You know, his victory in Iowa was uh, 110,000 people out of that was 15% of all Republicans. And uh, the way the reporting went was he uh, did not pick up uh, a lot of support in the suburbs like of Des Moines. And you remember that the uh, white women in suburbs is a variable in elections these days. There are a lot of people who are pessimistic about the future. There are people who don't recognize what Biden has done. We're going to stay on it. But uh, I just want to encourage people to uh, get ready to do a lot of work. We, it's up to us how the election will go. A little good report that I read from an email I get called Spark of Genius. And this one reads, deforestation in Brazil's Amazon fell by nearly 50% in 2023 compared to 2022. President Luiz Ignacio Lula da Silva pledged to end deforestation by 2030 when he took office a year ago. Preliminary data from National Space Agency showed 5,153 square kilometers of the Amazon were cleared in 2023 down from 10,278 square kilometers in 2022. Rainforest destruction had surged to a 12-year high under his predecessor, the right-wing Jair Bolsonaro. Okay, football's getting close to being over. We've got the semifinals coming up next week. Then there'll be a Super Bowl, and then it'll be it. We can focus on basketball and be rooting for baseball. All right, Hal? That's Hal, our engineer, my son, Hal James. Thank you, Hal. Give us a little tune, and then we'll be right back with our first guest, our good friend, Katie Hogan, who happens to be her birthday today, the 22nd. We need some time to talk with you. It's not the time for easy Hey, all you citizens of the world, welcome back to Live from the Heartland for the week of January 27th. And we are recording on the 22nd, which just happens to be Katie Hogan's birthday. And Katie Hogan just happens to be our next guest. Sometimes she's a host, sometimes she's a co-host, sometimes she's a co-producer, and sometimes I can't find her because she's off busy doing other things. So hello to you, Katie Hogan, and happy birthday. Hello, Michael James, and happy birthday back at you a week later. 
Um, uh-huh. Well, that's good. Uh, you know, while I was uh, hiding out over here watching football and sports during this heavy cold spell, which appears to have bro- broken, uh, you were busy marshalling other folks and making phone calls about a very important project that Network 49 is very much involved with. How about starting to fill us in on what you've been doing? <laughs> yeah, Network 49 is the progressive independent political organization of the 49th Ward, which you are also a member of the steering committee. Um, it's a great group that uh, is engaged in, I think, some always some really important work, starting with the education committee that uh, got a referendum on the ballot some five years ago to uh, put a, a moratorium or a cease on expansion of charter schools in our ward. Um, and moving on with the um, Community Safety Committee that um, held the feet to the fire in terms of the police accountability on the uh, consent decree um, and is still actively a member of that uh, citywide coalition to um, make our police department better. Uh, And uh, currently, uh, the next big thing that we're dealing with is this Uh, Bring Chicago Home referendum that is on the ballot in the primary this March, March 19th. It's the last thing on the ballot. It's a referendum that is basically proposing we uh, raise a real estate uh, transfer tax, sometimes referred to as RETT, RET. Everyone pays a transfer tax when they buy property. Um, It just varies in degree and percentage. Um, What this proposes is what is is so-called a mansion tax, meaning uh, properties, whether they're commercial or or domestic, um, over a million dollars price tag gets a raised uh, RETT, transfer tax, um, which is why they call it the mansion tax. Uh, Simultaneously, this particular piece of legislation uh, proposes alongside of that that um, real estate lower than a million dollars cost uh, has a decrease in the percentage of RETT. So the result of this would be that 95% of um, property buyers in uh, our city would actually experience a lessening of that tax, whereas those who can afford it, um, that's the presumption, uh, will pay slightly more. And the emphasis is on slightly. Um, let's see. The purpose of that is to find to uh, fund a dedicated fund for uh, to address homelessness and um, affordable housing in Chicago. We have not enough affordable housing. CHA, one of the uh, least well organized uh, government bodies we've got at this point, is sitting on acres and acres of empty land um, where. Previous mayors tore down the uh, projects that that housed so much problems, so many ills for the people living in it, and were an inhumane housing of thousands of people in Chicago for a long, long time. Um, An embarrassment. Let me just throw in for people who are listening and may not know, CHA is the Chicago Housing Authority. Right. Been Um, around a long time. Right. So they... they, uh, have not kept up. They did not replace uh, those units with affordable units. They have, they're way behind on all of that. Um, so uh, so the RETT, the, the mansion tax or bring Chicago home proposes to develop a fund specifically dedicated to doing the work that hasn't been done to both uh, acquire and and promote affordable housing, as well as to address homelessness in in a fashion that also provides wraparound services, though they use that phrase, meaning um, helping people who may have been shelterless for a long time get accustomed to having a roof over their heads, which, believe it or not, is a huge deal um, when people get off the streets and finally have a uh, an enclosed space it can be a a fairly terrifying experience, as well as um, eventually uh, a secure one and one that um, should 
eventually bring people real peace and, and comfort. Um, but it does require some attention and some assistance. Um, so the mansion tax, the, the um, Bring Chicago Home referendum is about addressing that. It's, um, it's a somewhat radical, except it's, it's not new. Uh, it has worked in other cities across the nation, San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, all have um, some version of the Bring Chicago Home uh, RETT. And, um, and they've had good success with it. They also have learned some lessons on how to not do it. Um, and uh, so that, you know, we, we have a little bit of a, a road, a road, a path laid for us ahead. What we're doing right now, Network 49 in co coalition with many, many groups across the, the entire city, but in our neck of the woods, the 40th Ward, the 47th Ward, a lot of people, 48th Ward, are, are engaged in this coalition, making phone calls, canvassing door-to-door, -door, which has been a little difficult with the polar freeze. But this week, we're going to actually add a couple of weekday canvases for anybody who wants to. Give us a call. Uh, Wednesday and Friday, we will send out people to knock doors in our ward um, on, to let people know about this. You know, the, the, the terrible turnout, voter turnout, even in general elections, is something we should be ashamed of. And so raising people's awareness that, one, there is an election in Chicago, March 19th, and two, um, there's something really important on the ballot, which will not appear on the ballot in the general. So people don't quite always know that. They go, oh, well, I'll get a second whack at it in November. No, you won't. This is the only chance to vote for it. This is the only chance to pass it so that then it will be given to the city council to fashion the legislation needed to develop the fund and put people in, in charge of it. Um, Katie, let me ask you, uh, what yeah. is the response that you've been getting uh, just on the phone banking? Um, so, yeah, we... Um, um, it's positive. People, when you explain it to folks, they're like, oh yeah, I'm for that. Um, and that's because we have in our ward a, a pretty progressive base and also um, not a lot of big, wealthy home buyers. So it's people who understand this is something that's needed. We also have an older woman who so deftly and, and uh, did, dealt with the tent city that had developed in our park at Tui Park a couple of years ago, up to 70 or 80 people, she rehoused um, in the course of a year of, of really working on it. It was in the first year of her first term. Um, she is to be really singled out for her Oh, It's efforts. been great. You know, there was a lot of like grumbling around it and uh, people uh, blaming uh, crime on it, uh, you know, a lot of that. And she just... Uh, Put it through and said we're going to get rid of this uh, situation. But they they were going to build a uh, a a shelter in that old uh, North Shore Hospital building on Clark. Is that happening still? I I actually don't know the uh, current status of that. Uh, there were some building issues, which was predictable. It was uh it was meant for different use. I do believe it is still on its way to becoming a um, some housing. But she had already housed most of the people in the park in other found housing for them in other ways. Um, so the, basically, this is will get a lot of headwind from the real estate um, people, uh, folks who will try and scare folks and tell them this is going to just ruin Chicago. I, I think what actually has a much bigger chance of ruining Chicago is making this a one class city where no one can afford to live in half of the neighborhoods. And Katie, in our, in our remaining moments or so, because um, I'm sure we're going to talk about this more, uh, I know we will, can you tell people how they can get involved, how to contact you or Network 49 and participate not only in the phone banking, but even knocking on doors or uh, talking to people at shopping centers? Give us some info. Uh, one North Side and um, is the... Uh, coordinator in our neck of the woods of the coalition. So if you're not in our neighborhood here in the 49th Ward, you can go to One North Side or look for um, bringchicagohome.org. And there's a mobilized sign up there for action. Um, 
we should definitely take action. Uh, it's it's not that hard. Phoning people, everybody goes, oh, I don't want to phone. I don't want to knock on doors. Like, I'm, I'm sorry. That, that That is the way we do it. That is the way we make a change. And we should get used to it because we have a much bigger challenge later this year. And, uh, one more time, the election, it's the primary. It's, it's the March primary. 19th. Yes, March 19th. Early voting starts March 5th in the, all the neighborhoods. Um, you can get a, a mail-in ballot via the application process at Board of Elections. Um, so, yeah, I know we're running out of time, but thanks for letting us talk about it. Well, I'm glad, and I'll see you later, and happy birthday to you. Thank you. And everybody out there in our listening land, wherever you may be, stay tuned. We're going to be right back after a real short musical break with Amy Nelson Christensen of the Loyola School of Education about a project to get needed equipment for young kids, migrants going to Chicago public schools. Stay tuned here on the left end of your dial. all you citizens of the world you're listening to live from the heartland or you might be watching it our next guest is someone i don't know yet but i'm going to get to know her through the course of this conversation she is the one and only amy c nelson christensen and she is an associate professor of the school of education she can fill you in on those details at Loyola university which is uh, kind of our home base for this radio show it originated with WLUW doing it live on the stage at the Heartland, and now it's by Zoom, and I'm really glad to meet Amy. Hello to you, Amy Nelson Christensen. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yes, I am a clinical assistant professor in the School of Education here at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm also the Associate Dean for Inclusive Excellence and Strategic Innovation, and I'm so grateful to have this time with you today. Well, those are a lot of titles, and we can yeah. go into that more when we talk. But what, what really uh, caught my attention was that you're involved in a project with the School of Education to help get necessary school supplies, I believe, for 5,000-plus yeah. migrant kids who are now in the Chicago public schools. Tell yeah. us a little bit about how this came to be, what it is, and how people can help out. Yeah, so... Um, about August, we um, and we have a strong partnership with Chicago Public Schools as the School of Education because a lot of our students do their um, field experiences or student teaching there. Um, and as our we were collaborating um, as a you know a community member, um, we learned that CPS was facing a large influx of newcomer students, and we define newcomer students as students who are, they typically are uh, refugees or asylum seekers, uh, migrants who are new to the community. So we call them newcomers. Um, and the, as you probably heard in the news, um, there were migrants being busted in and flown in. And um, the, there were waves of students that were just coming, families coming through. And a lot of them had young children that needed to be enrolled in school. <laughs> Um, CPS was not expecting to have this large influx of newcomers, um, and since August, they've welcomed over well over 5,000 students. And so as we look to the new year, um, we're also looking to make sure that the students that they're welcoming have the necessary school supplies, that found the foundational needs that they have besides food, water, shelter. Um, they also need school supplies in order to um, access their learning. And so we partnered with Chicago Public Schools um, to understand the schools that were the hardest hit um, and received a list of supplies that they need in terms of um, school supplies. 
Um, and then we partnered with Impacts, which is a, a company that specializes in um, getting school supplies to schools and communities based on what they need. And we're really grateful for the not only our continuing partnership with Chicago Public Schools, but also our new partnership with Impacts to create a school supply drive that will help us meet this increasing need, not only for the students that we've already welcomed since August, but the new students that we continue to welcome throughout the school throughout the rest of the school year. Amy Nelson, Kristen Sin, how many of these kids are in like the 49th Ward or close to Loyola? And are any of the schools that are, are heavily impacted in, in our area or is it beyond? So you can call me Amy, by the way. Um, Good. Because <laughs> so, <laughs> that is a mouthful in and of itself. I didn't even put the C in. <laughs> um, so what I would say is that they're actually all over the city. So the schools, the way that um, Chicago Public Schools handles their enrollment is they try to get the students in the schools that are closest to where they're currently living. That also does lead to some transitioning throughout the city. So I would say that they are they are in the, um, they try to um, put them in schools where there's the largest capacity. We have schools throughout the city, particularly in the Rogers Park neighborhood, that um, are the most equipped or have the most capacity because they already have newcomer centers and they've been working with students from migrant families or newcomer families for years. Um, and then we also have schools that are kind of new to this, the, the needs of newcomer students. And so um, they're all over the city and they're, they're, clustered around where um, newcomers are staying, particularly at shelters. Um, and that can be in flux based on when they go from, uh, you know, temporary shelters or housing to something that might be a little bit more long term. Well, I'm liking this because, you know, um, I do always, in my own view of the world, welcome migrants and people seeking asylum. I also am pretty interested in what causes that. And I do blame our own government a lot on conditions in South America, et cetera. Um, what are the specific things that people need, these kids need? I mean, pencils, do they need clothes, any of that? And is it, uh, is it something where you're asking people to donate money or actually the stuff? Yeah, we're asking for money. So the schools have listed, provided us with a supply list. Impacts then took those supply lists and estimated how much it would cost to cover all of the things that they've asked for. They've asked for things like you mentioned, pencils. They've also asked for things like backpacks. Um, students are coming with nothing, absolutely nothing. They don't even have a backpack to put books in or anything like that. Paper, notebooks. Um, so just basic school supplies that Families just don't have the capacity to go and get, they also, some of these families are completely new to ed, the American educational system. So they're not even aware of what the needs might be. So being able to just hand them a backpack full of everything that they need, or to go into a classroom where the teacher already has all the supplies necessary in order to to just give to the student whenever they need it. They don't even have to ask for it. Um, it really makes a big difference. So pretty much like basic things like papers, pencils, backpacks, and those kinds of things, even like pencil boxes to keep all their supplies together in, in one spot. Um, and I think that, so based on that, we're asking for um, donations at $20 increments. You can make as many donations of 20 at $20 each as you as you want. So you can make five donations of $100 um, for $20 each, and that goes directly to the school. So the we will use that money to then purchase all the supplies that the schools have requested, and then the supplies will go directly to the school. They don't have to go pick it up at some central location. Impacts, again, they do this for a living. It's what they do. They will ship it directly to the school. So then all the school has to do is give them to the teachers or give them to the students when they come into the schools. Let me ask you, uh, is Impact a for-profit company or a not-for-profit? They are a not-for-profit. They actually started in Minnesota very similarly for a similar cause. I think they're from the Twin Cities, um, and they're, they also have experienced their own migrant influx. Um, and when they were faced with having to support students as they were coming into their schools in Minnesota, 
they had to figure out how they were going to get supplies into these communities and impact stepped up. Amy, how's it going so far? So far, we have only raised a few hundred dollars and we would love for any listener who feels compelled to support this cause to please um, check out School of Education at Loyola University Chicago's social media, um, Facebook, follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn to find out how you can um, access the link, the donation page through Impacts to donate. What are the specifics with LinkedIn and Facebook? Is it Loyola School of Education? Yes. So uh, Loyola University Chicago School of Education is our handle. Do you have a goal for how much money you're trying to raise? We would like to raise $100,000 in order to cover the costs of the supplies that the schools have requested. So we have a ways to go. So hopefully- We have uh, quite a ways to go. And our deadline is February 5th. Okay. Well, this is good. And- uh, do you have any other projects in the future in mind and uh, doing good in the world? We have a lot of projects at Loyola, particularly focused on our newcomer students at Loyola broadly. So we do have a, a winter drive campaign. So if you also are following Loyola University Chicago on social media as well, you can find out more information there. Um, and we have um, also a lot of um, neighborhood events that um, we are supporting. Well, I really want to thank you for coming on, Amy, and I do hope I meet you in person someday. And Likewise. Uh, as we like to say, keep doing good in the world because the world needs all the good that you do, that I do, that all the people who are going to donate to this project will do. Yes. Thank you for having me. And again, that aligns to Loyola's mission of faith that does justice. Right on, sister. <laughs> thank and everybody you. stay tuned to Live from the Heartland. We're going to be back with our interview with an old friend. James Russell talking about something that the older among us are interested in, retirement and retirement funds. We'll be right back. Stay tuned here on the left end of your dot. I'm an old school player. They know my name up and down the line. I'm an old school player. They knew my name up and down the line. Been doing it a long time. Okay, welcome back, everybody who's listening or watching live from the Heartland for the week of January 27th. And now our next guest is someone I've known back since the 1960s. We were both active members of the Students for Democratic Society. He went on to be uh, Quite a professor, both on the East Coast, down in Texas for a while, up there in the Northwest. He is the author of, I think, eight books. And um, he was most recently on the show talking about the time he helped to integrate schools at a town in Oklahoma. So welcome to you, James W. Russell. All right, thanks, Mike. Good Happy to be here. You look good always. in a tie there, brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, one of the things that... Uh, I keep finding out about you is that you have more and more books and you've uh, you've put out a couple of books on retirement. And uh, most recently, uh, you did have a book called A Labor Guide to Retirement. I'm a little older than you. I just hit 82. Retirement is something that we thought would happen. Uh, in a way, it happened for me. But in a way, we're both still working away. So talk about your book. And what led you to uh, devote a bunch of attention to this labor guide to retirement? Well, I, I uh, was involved in a struggle in Connecticut when I discovered that the 401k type plan that I had um, was that I was paying about twice as much into it and I'd get half the benefits of people who, my colleagues who were in a pension plan instead. And so I started uh, a movement, a rank and file uh, union movement, which resulted in us being able to uh, convert our 401k money into pension credits. And that resulted in a much better uh, retirement for me. 
Uh, and in the course of all of that, I had to learn everything I could about uh, pension plans and 401ks and so forth. So I ended up writing a couple of books uh, about it. And one of the things I discovered, the motive for this last book, is that there are a lot of people in the labor movement who really don't know as much as they should know about pension plans uh, because they may be in the position of having to negotiate them. Uh, they're certainly in the position of having to explain them to members. Um, and uh, this is something that I thought was uh, really needed was a, a, you know, a guide so that people could really be brought up to speed and, and really understand what was going on. Who is, uh, is a, as a guy who's also putting out some books and some more, who's reading your book? And uh, I mean, you've got this guide for people in the labor movement and beyond about uh, things they should know. Are, is you think people are paying attention? Are you able to reach some people with it? Yeah, I mean, I'm all the time getting emails from people who come across the book and um, have questions about their particular uh, retirement plan at work, especially if they are uh, union activists. Um, and, you know, so I'm able to interact with them, which is exactly what I wanted uh, to be able to do. That's good. Now, let me ask you, what is uh, the relationship between your your longtime SDS experience, your progressive uh, work, and becoming a retirement activist? How did this well, connect? Well, yeah, well, certainly back when I was in SDS, I never would have guessed that I would <laughs> uh, become interested in retirement issues. I mean, I thought- Or live that long. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, I thought that that was probably the most boring thing in the world. Okay, but I've really I've become quite fascinated with it because I think it is a, a central part of the labor experience. I mean, you work for 30, 40 years, and you don't want to go off your own personal fiscal cliff after that. And yet you want to be able to continue living as you're accustomed to living. And that's the whole point of what retirement plans are supposed to do. Now, with SDS, um, I would say that I learned every bit of organizing skills that I ever learned in SDS, and I was able to apply them to that struggle in Connecticut, uh, which turned out to be the biggest, uh, in terms of financial terms, the biggest organizing project I was ever a part of, because something like $400 million uh, was transferred from 401k plans into the state pension plan as a result of the victory that we had in Connecticut. Jim, and, give me a, maybe an example of a, a tactic you learned in SDS that you let later applied in your struggle in Connecticut, my home state, for a better yeah. retirement deal. Well, uh, one was that I found that you only needed a small group of people to really organize a much larger group of people. Another was that uh, the importance of having something like a newsletter to keep people abreast of what was going on. So very early on, uh, we started a webserv or a listserv. And in that, we knew that a lot of people were afraid to talk about this. And so we kept it so that anybody could be anonymous, anybody could make comments. And we said to people that they should feel free to uh, forward this to anybody. And so that thing really mushroomed. Uh, and then, um, you know, uh, things really took off uh, because of those kind of very simple things. Another thing which is very interesting is every place that I went to speak, I always handed out a list for people to sign up for the mailing list. And I remember uh, the first time I did that, uh, somebody who was a member of uh, the union wanted to take it over. And I think I kind of fought them to uh, make sure that you, you, you never lose, that's your biggest you know, piece of valuable organizing is to have that list of people. And so I kept that um, to myself. 
Okay. Good. As opposed to surrendering it and then, you know, never being able to get it again. Because we had to do something of a struggle against unions that did not want to change things. Eventually, uh -huh. they eventually they came along, but that's why it was a rank and file struggle. Uh, in your writing, you talk about there is a retirement crisis. Now, what is that? What is the retirement crisis? Well, the retirement crisis is simply that people don't have enough money um, to retire on. Uh, we have the so-called three-legged stool in this country, where you have um, yeah, so, uh, Social Security, you have uh, presumably some sort of retirement plan for work, and then you have personal savings. Well, that was never a great analogy, because uh, it turns out that uh, for a little bit over half of people, uh, Social Security is by far the biggest source of income. Um, and very few people really have a good uh, retirement plan for work. And for a number of people, that's been made worse because beginning in the 1980s, there was this huge shift from traditional pension plans where you were guaranteed something for the rest of your life to 401k plans where you're supposed to invest in the market. And in our case, again, to cite what I did before, we were paying twice as much into it and would get back half as much. And I think a lot of people think that pension plans are not sustainable because they're too costly. It was actually the opposite. In Connecticut, uh, the cost to the state of the pension plan was less than what they were putting into this 401k plan. So, you know, a well-managed pension plan is by far the most efficient way um, to put aside money for retirement. Uh, you also talk about the Chicago Boys, and that caught my attention. Uh, yeah. Who are the Chicago Boys in this case, and what did they do to retirement plans? Well, Milton Friedman, uh, you know, professor at the uh, University of Chicago, uh, is very famous for uh, really trying to develop a kind of pure capitalism. Okay, and. He uh, was opposed to Social Security uh, because he didn't like to see money going through government uh, as opposed to going through the stock market. Uh, he thought that every person should just save up and then whatever would happen would happen uh, to them. Well, the Chicago Boys became a term in Latin America because advisors connected to him went around to a number of countries and ended up with pro-market um, reforms in those countries, a lot of privatization, so forth, free market stuff. In Chile, uh, there was a man named Jose Piñera, who was not a student of Friedman, but a student of a student of Friedman, okay, and uh, actually went to not Chicago, but Harvard, and when the dictatorship, military dictatorship took over, um, he became uh, a major figure in the government. And then in 1983, he transformed a social security-like system in Chile into a 401k type system for the whole country. Um, and, you know, when that happened, uh, a lot of people didn't know what to make of it, okay? But by 2000, it was very clear that people who had been put into this uh, investment plan were not gonna get sufficient uh, retirement uh, income. And people who had stayed in the older plan were doing much better. Now that's become a major issue in Chile uh, with hundreds of thousands of people demonstrating or a return to uh, the older system. So the Chicago boys, as they were called in Latin America, uh, really wreaked a lot of havoc with people's uh, security. 
What just just to be clear now, give me a, a way that I, I grasp the difference between a pension plan and a 401k. Sure. Uh, a pension plan is a collective pot, so to speak. Okay, that you know, like social security is a pension plan. Okay. So if anybody tells you pension plans don't work, say, well, why am I getting my social security check, you know, the same day every month and you know, and, and it increases every year, it works, okay? If if it's well-managed, it, it'll work. And so it's a collective pot of money, okay? And then it pays benefits out of that pot of money. And the benefits are guaranteed, okay? So uh, it, no matter what happens on the stock market, you know, that's the problem of the employer or whoever's running the pension plan. It's not the problem of the beneficiary. With a 401k plan, all the risk shifts to you. Okay, you have an individual savings and a best investment account. If the market tanks, your account tanks with it. Like in four uh in 2008, people lost lost on average 35% of their savings in 401k plans. People who were in pension plans didn't lose anything. I mean, they had no worries whatsoever. They sailed through 2008 with nothing happening to them. But people who were in 401k plans had, you know, a great deal of problems as a result of that. Well, expand expand on that a little bit about, you know, we hear that uh, the, you, you know, pension plans don't work. Uh, I know two that are apparently the Social Security, and I'm in the Screen Actors Guild, uh, and uh, I'm I like them, uh, but uh, what uh, you know they, we hear that they're drowning in debt, that kind of thing. Is this just uh, uh, something foisted on us by the forces of capitalism trying to get people to uh, disown pension plans and move to the 401k uh, or what? Uh, briefly. You're absolutely right. Okay, um, and more more elaborate. Um, there's something like fifty thousand pension plans besides Social Security in the United States. Most of them are quite healthy. Okay, uh, what we hear about are the ones that are teetering on, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, financial problem. Okay, and there are. Indeed, plans like that. I mean, no, no retirement plan is going to work unless it is well managed. I mean, you have to, in a lot of cases, the ones that are doing badly is because they weren't funded properly over the years. Uh, you know, like in a lot of cases in the private sector, uh, they were doing quite well on the market. So then they stopped putting extra money into the account. And then when the market went down, the, the whole thing went down because they hadn't been properly funding it over, over the years. But a properly funded uh, pension plan should go on forever. The first pension plan in the world, okay, uh, on uh, at least on a large scale, was in Germany in 1883. And that's still going. I mean, it has gone through the you know, Hitler period. It has gone through the communist period. It has gone through everything. And it's it still goes, you know, because, you know, whatever's going on, you know, you've got some bureaucrats that are, you know, doing what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, to keep this plan going, and a lot, a lot of people depend upon it. You know, one of the things that we hear a lot, uh, particularly from anyone, if we know still are hanging out or talking to right-wingers, uh, is that Social Security is going broke. Um, now, if the, you know, if the U.S. somehow really falls, I imagine that might be true, but what's the story on Social Security? Can I count on that or basically count on that for however many years I got left? Yeah, I, I mean, they've been saying that ever since around 1979, uh, when some private foundations that were linked to Milton Friedman 
began uh, a campaign to undermine people's confidence in Social Security. Okay, um, and Social Security, like any other pension plan, needs to be adjusted periodically. Okay, any accountant can tell you that you have you need to have as much money coming into it as are going out of it. What has happened is that it has not been adjusted since 1986, uh, which is a long time to go yeah. without adjustment. Okay, that's not exactly true. There's been a little bit of adjustment in terms of the income that you have to pay on, but not enough adjustment. So in 2033, okay, uh, it looks like Social Security will not run out of money, but will not have enough money to pay all of the benefits that are promised to people. Now, there are very easy fixes of this by Congress. But one thing, the most popular one, is simply to remove the cap on income that is taxed for Social Security, which right now is about 150000 a year. Okay, which for all everybody watching this is well beyond our income. Okay, but for, <laughs> for for rich people, I mean, that's a drop in the bucket, okay, for them. But even more important than that is investment income is not taxed for Social Security. If you were to start, and that's where rich people get most of their money. If you were to start inve uh, taxing investment money, uh, Social Security would be solvent for you know, just years and years and years and would not have to cut benefits or anything like that. So eventually, I mean, Congress is going to have to do something. What the Republicans want to do is to cut the benefits. What the Democrats want to do is to increase the revenue into Social Security. So just keep that in mind when you hear, because everybody claims that they want to save Social Security because they know it's such a popular program that there would be riots in this country if they were suddenly to abolish it. So James W. Russell, author of A Labor Guide to Retirement, if you had your druthers, what would you do to reform the retirement system for all of us aging uh, folks? Well, I would make it so that people, instead of having 401ks, could put that money into Social Security and get a bigger income in return for it. Uh, I, I would um, kind of go around the private pension plans, which uh, because I think, you know, the problem with private pension plans is when you change jobs, it doesn't go with you. Okay, whereas with Social Security, you know, whatever job you have, you're paying into Social Security. It's one big national pension fund. So I think that that's what we should be putting our money into in terms of reforms. Uh, you know, we got about a minute left, and I'm going to fire this at you. This is uh, not about retirement, but in looking at all the books you've written, uh, it's one I really love was that Escape from Texas, a novel about slavery and the Texas War of Independence. But I just discovered today that you wrote a book called The Marx-Ingalls Dictionary. Give us, a, you know, at a time when socialism is getting more popular, give us a little bit on that book, real short. Well, uh, I'm a great believer in uh, using words precisely, okay, uh, to know what you mean by it. Okay, for example, if you say middle class, I mean, there's probably about 50 different meanings of that flying around. So you need to be somewhat precise. And Marx and Engels, okay, who whatever you think about communism and so forth, they were extraordinary scholars. They really dissected capitalism. And they invented a whole set of new concepts to be able to do that. So the idea behind that book was to provide a quick reference to someone who's struggling their way through, you know, Marx and Engels and wondering what these words mean, uh, you know, that are central, because it's almost a whole new language. So that was what, what the idea was behind that book. Well, I'm going to have to get at that so I can 
really get a good nef- definition for the petite bourgeoisie in other terms. James, <laughs> that, that's Russell, in there. <laughs> all right. You're a wonderful guy, and I'm glad we get to talk every now and then. It's been more frequent these days. And I want yeah. to thank you for uh, giving me a nice little review of my newest book on Rising Up Angry, which I am about to send out to the masses. And as we close out, I'm also going to tell people that this show needs a little bit of financial support. You can get to me at that back at AOL. And you give us a donation for the show, we're going to get you a copy of this book. Maybe I'll talk James into getting a copy of his book. So, James Russell, thanks a lot. And everyone else, I want to thank you for tuning in to Live from the Heartland. I do want to talk about a couple of friends who have passed away. A woman named Joan Holden, who was a principal author for plays that the San Francisco Mime Troupe did. She passed away at 85. And a very good friend of ours, Fran Ainsley, who uh, worked in Joint Community Union in Uptown back in the late 60s, went on to uh, do a lot of great work. I was a professor at the University of Tennessee College of Law, a community activist who fought for immigrant rights. She was wonderful. And as my sister Melody James, who worked with her in the Joint Theater said, Fran was a fabulous, warm, compassionate, creative, musical soul with her heart aimed and harnessed for justice. Fran Ainsley, we will miss you. Joan Holden, too. Everybody else, we want to thank you for tuning in to Live from the Heartland. If you missed last week's show, it was a good one. And we we had Dick Simpson talking about Chicago mayors. And uh, we had Warren Lemming talking about Bohemians. And I want to thank everyone who makes the show possible, our guests today, as well as our co-producers, Katie Hogan, who was the guest today, along with James Russell, Tom Clark, uh, Lynn Orman, and we want to thank our engineer, Hal James. Everyone out there, you keep doing good in the world, because the world needs all the good that you do, and together we can do a whole lot, including stop the you-know-who. All right, all power to the people. Over and out. See you next week. We want to thank you for tuning in to the Live from the Heartland show on Spotify Podcasts. New episodes air every Saturday at 9 a.m. Central Time. You can listen on Apple Podcasts by looking up Live from the Heartland. Episodes are broadcast on WLUW each Saturday at 9 a.m. on the left end of your dial, 88.7 FM in Sweet Home, Chicago, or streaming everywhere worldwide at WLUW.org. If you want to tune in a day early, episodes are broadcast on Lumpin' Radio Fridays at 9 a.m. on 105.5 FM and streaming at lumpinradio.com. Video episodes are available on Fridays beginning at 9 a.m. on youtube.com slash heartlandmedia and also on CAN-TV each following Thursday at 9 p.m. on Channel 21 or streaming everywhere else at cantv.org. I'm Michael James, and I'm glad to have been your host. Until next time, remember, do good in the world because the world needs all the good that you do, that I do, that we do together. All power to the people. Over and out. Come to limb. Are you doing the best you can? <laughs> Tell me, are you doing?